When our friends, if you are part of a house group, you will know that for the last few weeks, we have been going through 1 Thessalonians. I say we, I mean you, because they don't let me into house groups. I think the presence of the pastor would be a bit of a threat. People wouldn't be prepared to ask questions and make comments, so I keep away. Well, if when you saw the notice sheet this morning and understood that we were beginning a, a series in 1 Thessalonians, you, think, you thought, oh, no, not 1 Thessalonians again. Too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. Let me put your minds at rest. I'm not going to through, go through 1 Thessalonians verse by verse. That would probably be a very, very good and, and profitable exercise, but I'm not going to do that. What I want to try to do is to pick out themes, important themes in the letter. Because not only will it give a, a background to the house group's study of one Thessalonians, but these things are just as relevant today as they were when the letter was written. But of course, everybody's not in a house group, so let me just very briefly give you a little background just to uh, place the letter in the scheme of things and say when, where, and under what circumstances it was written. If you want to read the story, you'll find it in Acts chapter 17. It's a very exciting story. Let's take up the narrative when Paul and Silas are in Philippi. Do you remember the story? It used to thrill me as a child. Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison. Unjustly, they were Roman citizens. They shouldn't have been treated like that, but they were. They were put into the inner prison and fastened to the stocks. Now, if that happened to me, I'd be pretty miserable. But as far as Paul and Silas are concerned, they spent the time singing, singing hymns and psalms, praising God. And in the middle of the night, there was an earthquake. And if you remember the story, all the locks and shackles were shaken out of their housings. The prison doors were open. The jailer thought that his end had come and that all his prisoners had escaped. He was about to kill himself. But Paul assured him, do thyself no harm, we are all here. And then there followed that wonderful night. And it was a wonderful night when Paul was able to share the gospel with the jailer and his family. They all became believers they had a wonderful time. They had a wonderful meal together. And by the morning, the Philippian church had been born. Of course, there was Lydia and uh, the rest of the women who, to whom Paul had already been speaking. They were already believers. But very soon, that little group of Christians 
sent Paul and Silas on their way. Not before Paul had made a fuss. And I'm glad he did make a fuss because he let it be known that he and Silas were Roman citizens. And when the magistrates heard that they were Roman citizens and they had been treated in this appalling way, they came and obsequiously begged Paul and Silas to leave the city quietly. Oh, none of that, says Paul. We want an official apology. And they got one. Well, after saying goodbye to Lydia and the rest of the church, they went on to Thessalonica. And they had a wonderful time there. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue and on three successive successive Sabbaths shared the good news of the Lord Jesus with the Jews there. Now, any synagogue congregation in a Greek city like Thessalonica would have been made, made up of two sorts of people. There would have been Jews, of course, but there would also have been believing Gentiles, God-fearers. That's the usual technical term, God-fearers. People like Cornelius. You remember the Roman centurion who sent for Peter. Now, these Gentiles had realized that polytheism, the Roman pantheon, that was just a load of old garbage. And they'd got rid of that. And they were drawn to the monotheism of Judaism and to the incredible um, integrity of the Jewish law. But they weren't Jews. They were God-fearers. They were on the edge of the Jewish community. And it was to them that Paul particularly appealed. After all, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. If you remember, when he had been converted on the Damascus Road, he, had, he was told that was his specific ministry. I have chosen you. You are my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. And so uh, when the Orthodox Jews, who also had their eye on these believing Gentiles, the God-fearers, when they realized that Paul was having just as much success in Thessalonica as he had in Philippi, they came down and they caused tremendous trouble. They organized a mob um, to, uh, to break up the meetings. And they attacked Jason. Now, Jason had been Paul and Silas and Timothy's host. Well, the missionaries were carefully got out of the way Jason, unfortunately, was dragged in front of the magistrates and told to keep the peace. Paul and Silas and Timothy were sent off down to Berea. And uh, if you know anything about the Bereans, I always think the Bereans were, 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 were a bit of... I feel like them as I, I felt like the, 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 the swaps at school, you know? You know what I mean? the ones who are always, always get the questions right. Because in the New Testament, it says the Bereans were of noble character and they checked everything that Paul said. They were sort of, <sighs> sort of Christians. Just to wake you up. I have my methods. Well, anyway, they went down to Berea. And the same thing happened, of course. The Jews came hot foot down from Thessalonica 
and cause trouble. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, in the end, had to go off to Athens. Now, by this time, Paul was a bit concerned about what was going on at Thessalonica. And so he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how the church was getting on. Silas was sent off to Philippi. And this letter is the response to Timothy's report. Timothy reported back to Paul about his visit to Thessalonica. And this letter is Paul's reaction to the report he received from Timothy. And there are are several themes um, which we will pick up over the next few Sundays. Um, The 4th of November and the 11th of November, of course, we will be in the uh, the letter to the Thessalonians. The 18th of November, uh, Simon and Becky Lunt will be uh, with us, so we'll have a rest from 1 Thessalonians. And then for the Sundays leading up to Advent Sunday, we will uh, come through this, this letter seeing these, these various themes which are highlighted. Some of the Thessalonians, you see, apparently believed that the Lord Jesus was about to return at any moment, so there was no, no point in keeping on going to work, was there? I mean, what, if the world is going to end on Wednesday, you don't have to report for, 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 for work on Monday, do you, really? You take Monday and Tuesday off if the world's going to end on Wednesday. Well, Paul says, no, don't give up the day job. Chapter 4, verse 11, and again in chapter 5, verse 14, he urges them not to be idle and depend on others, but to work and provide for themselves. Conversely, there were some who were worried about loved ones who had died because Jesus hadn't yet returned. Now, what about them? Were they lost? Well, Paul addresses that in the second part of chapter 4, and we shall come on to that, almost certainly on Remembrance Sunday. Then um, he knew that they would face opposition and persecution. That was partly why he sent Timothy back. And in chapter 3, in verses 2 and 3, he says, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. But Timothy sent a really encouraging report back. Verse 6 and following. Timothy has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecutions, we are encouraged because of your faith. Now, isn't that wonderful? In all our distress and persecutions, we were encouraged. How would you feel if you had to deal with with distress and persecution to the level of these people, to the level of Paul. How would you feel? Would you feel encouraged? I wouldn't. I'd moan and groan and grizzle and grump. Of course I would. But Paul, he was encouraged. Why? Encouraged because of your faith. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. And then, as always, of course, Paul had his detractors. There were many people who uh, didn't think much of Paul. And they were constantly criticizing him. They were constantly finding fault. 
They said he was a charlatan. They said he was a flatterer. They said he was uh, double-minded. And in verses uh, 3 and following of chapter 2, he defends himself. He says, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. We're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. And then finally, it appears that there may have been some misuse of spiritual gifts as well as uh, an unfortunate tendency to go back into sexual license. And so in chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, he says, It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So we'll, we'll come back to some of those themes. What I really want to highlight for you this morning is two things. First of all, the genuineness of Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. And secondly, how that's reflected in their faith and in what God was doing in their lives, corporately and individually. It's good to have a title for a sermon. It reveals roughly where the ministry is going because sometimes, you know, you can't be sure of where the ministry is going. There are some ministers, please God, I shall never be one of them, who aim at nothing and hit it. <laughs> so if you want a, a title for this sermon, what about love and longing? The genuineness of relationships. They say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. Well, I suppose we all have folk in our family circle to whom we feel close and some to whom we feel not so close. Among my uncles and aunts, as a child, both categories were represented. One of my father's sisters caused endless heartache because she never lost an opportunity to pour scorn on my mother's Christian faith. But I also remember a much more distant relative. Actually, I don't think she was a real relative. She was an honorary aunt. But I knew her as Auntie Grace. And you know, if anyone lived up to her name, it was that lady. Even now, less part of 60 years later, I have a lovely warm feeling when I think of Auntie Grace. Well, that was how Paul felt about the Thessalonians. If you've got a Bible open, look with me at uh, just three of the things he says about them. In verses 2 and 3, he says he thanks God for them, mentioning them in their, his prayers, remembering their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you something that's happened this week. There's a family loosely connected with this church who are in a certain amount of need. And someone, obviously I won't share who it is, but someone in the fellowship here has done something for that particular family which has made a tremendous difference to their lives. 
And I got a card from the family concerned. And it just says, thank you for what you've done. And then at the end, the last sentence is this. This is the nicest thing that anyone has ever done for us. I thank God for you remembering you in my prayers because of your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. It's what makes the difference. It's what really speaks to people about genuine Christian faith. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people, when they thought about us, remembered our work produced by faith, our labor prompted by love, and our endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to tell them how confident he is because their faith doesn't rest on words alone, but on the power of the Holy Spirit producing deep conviction. Now, those of you who are with us on Thursday evening at our prayer meeting last week will know that God spoke very clearly. He spoke very clearly because three people whom I had asked, well, two people whom I'd asked to share a word and one person who who shared a word um, unprompted by me said almost exactly the same thing. And they hadn't connived together. It was based on the song that we sang as a kind of background song to our conference at Pilgrim Hall in June, Energize. More love, more power, more of God in my life. Now, it's a wonderful thought, isn't it, that we should have more of God in our lives, that we should have more love and more power. Yes? Yes, indeed. But you know, dear friends, when we make room for God, he doesn't necessarily give us a lovely feeling. We don't necessarily live on cloud nine. Because when we give God more space in our lives, he challenges us. He brings us face to face with the things that challenge him in our lives. And sometimes it's a purging, cleansing experience. Not a very nice one. Nevertheless, unless the power of God is released in our lives, what is the point in us coming here Sunday by Sunday? What is the point in me blethering on from the pulpit? You know, I, I, I know one or two Scots words. Drich is a lovely Scots word. It means, you know, the, the day when it's, when it's sort of all damp and, and trying to rain and, and everybody feels miserable and they feel drich. Wonderful descriptive word. The other word I like is, is, is that word blether. It refers to what the minister does when he's just droning on. Oh, he's just a blatherer. What is the point in me blethering on if the power of God isn't behind the words that we say and the faith that we exercise? Well, as far as Paul is concerned, he is encouraged 
because their faith doesn't rest on words alone, but on the power of the Holy Spirit producing deep conviction. We'll come on to the way in which I believe God is really at work just in a moment. And then in verses 6 and 7, he commends them not merely for following his example, but in spite of severe suffering, presumably the kind of thing that happened to to Jason, for welcoming the gospel message with joy. And because of this, he says in verse 8, the Lord's message rang out, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, and your faith in God has become known everywhere. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people spread rumors about this church, if we became notorious, not in a bad way, but if people said, gosh, you know, something's happening there at at, at Linfield. Oh, my word. Something really is happening. Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't if we take God seriously. But just to go back to that little card that I received uh, earlier this week, let me share with you a a lovely story about a, a young member of a street gang in New York who began to go to church. His friends couldn't understand why he did, and they constantly tried to dissuade him, but he wouldn't listen. And one day, they demanded an explanation, and this is what he said. I go there because they love a God. I go there because they love a guy. Now that is what is going to make the difference to people's lives. Genuine love. Genuine love. Of course, there will be relationships which break down through no fault of our own. There will be needs that we're not able to meet. Jenny will bear me out um, when I say that certain demands have been made upon me as the years have gone by that I have found impossible to fulfill. I remember one old gentleman coming and hammering on my door in Hemel Hempstead demanding that I should go around and mend his television. (laughs) Well, I had to disappoint him. But it was a different matter. Years later, when we were in St. Mary Cray and a new lady came to church... I asked if I could go around and visit her, and she said, well, I'm awfully sorry. She said, I I have no furniture. I thought she was exaggerating. But when I got around, she was absolutely right. We sat on the floor. But three days later, her home was transformed because a few little words and a few little ears had produced everything she needed. Genuine love. It was all secondhand, but it didn't matter. It gave her a home for the first time in months when she'd gone from women's refuge to women's refuge trying to avoid and escape from her violent partner. God is at work in our lives and in our church. For a little while, we've been wondering whether we ought to think about beginning an alpha course in the first part of next year. Now, organizing an Alpha course is is a big ask. It needs organization. It needs effort. It needs money. It needs time. It needs um, hard work. Uh, And in particular, it needs people to invite folk to the Alpha course. And very often, 
that is perhaps the hardest bit of all, actually asking someone um, with the risk that they'll say, oh no, what are you asking me to do that for? Or get all embarrassed and say, uh, oh yes, well I'm not really interested in that sort of thing. So, we were teetering on the edge. In the outreach group, we wondered whether we could uh, ask one of the house groups to sort of metamorphosize itself into a, an alpha group. And the house groups said they weren't having any of that. So, what were we going to do? Well, all of a sudden we realized that we would have no alternative but to organize an alpha course because three people, two of them outside the church, came knocking on our door the week before last saying, when are you going to organize an alpha course? Three people banging on the door. And then, I'm not quite sure when it happened, whether it was last week or the week before, Lydia Goodchild received a present. Where it came from, she didn't know. Who sent it, she wasn't sure. Do you know what it was? It was a 15-foot alpha banner. Where it came from, we have no idea at all. Now, I think God is saying something to you and me, don't you? He is at work. If we give him more space, he will have more room to work. Yes, we have to be aware of the fact that if we give him more space, he will make demands. But there is no alternative if we want to be serious with him about being Christian disciples, that he needs that space. And if we give it to him, we will be blessed abundantly. You remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages, now and forever. He never breaks his promises. Amen.